If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11 this morning. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in these moments together? Implant your word in our hearts. Stir our hearts to respond with loving obedience, full of faith, And may you encourage us today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we began this sermon series on Philippians last week, you'll notice that Pastor Weldon had entitled this series, Joy in These Times. Joy being a major theme in the book of Philippians. I found it interesting this past week, those of you who are doing our reading challenge. In our New Testament reading, we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 6, Paul describes his ministry experience in this way. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's how he described his experience. Now, if you're like me, you know, as a professor of faith in Christ, we are to be joyful. In fact, we are to rejoice always, the scriptures tell us, even in sorrow. But sort of the elephant in the room question in our minds for most of us is how? How in the world can we rejoice always? Or as Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How is that possible? How is it possible to rejoice when I when I don't like my job, or I can't pay the bills, or even maybe I have plenty, but you feel empty with those things, and you think, is this all there is? How can I rejoice when my marriage and my family is a mess? There's dysfunction. When I have ongoing health issues, or maybe you've lost a loved one, 
recently. When I seem to face one disappointment after another, and I struggle with depression that doesn't seem to go away. How? And what does it look like to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? In our passage this morning, we see Paul experiencing and expressing joy through thankfulness and prayer for the Philippians. First of all, thankfulness in verses 3 through 8. I want to read verses 3 and 4 again for us. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. This is the first mention of joy in the book. We'll hear more about this as we go along. But let's just take a step back for a moment and consider what is biblical joy? What does that mean? What does it look like? We often hear it described as not based on circumstance or as opposed to some sort of superficial passing happiness that we may experience. That's true as far as it goes, but that's not all there is to this joy. More positively, it's also gladness in the Lord and his working. See, it's beyond any sort of earthly source comes from the Lord, and as you know from other passages like Galatians 5, it's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that's given from above, that's coming from outside ourselves. And as such, joy is not canceled out by earthly circumstances or suffering. It comes from above. It comes from God. And here we see joy being connected with both thankfulness and prayer uh, as Paul expresses it. Now, it's important to remember here uh, what's going on with Paul. He is in prison at this point with the very real possibility of his execution looming on the horizon. How would you be feeling Would you consider yourself a good candidate for joy in those circumstances? Yet Paul expresses joy, as he says, through thanksgiving. And you know, think about thanksgiving for a moment. That's something that we know we should do, but we're almost trained, you know, with our own sinful tendencies and our culture to be cynical and to not be thankful to forget all that the Lord has done for us. Yet, when we engage in thanksgiving, as Paul does here, it's an expression of joy in the Lord, but also it has a snowball effect. I don't know if you've experienced that in in prayer and in thanksgiving to the Lord, that the more you consider what he has done, the more thankful you are and the more joyful you are, the more rejoicing you do. Many of you know or have heard of the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh preacher, 20th century, died in the early 80s. He ministered in London for a number of years. But he spent about the last year of his life in and out of hospitals, 
sick, dying. And so he was laid up in the bed, not able to preach for an extended period of time. And during that time, he said, our greatest, he's talking about Christians, our greatest danger is to live upon our activity. Our relationship to God is to be the supreme cause of joy. You see, he would have people come visit him who knew him, and they would say things like, I bet it's really hard for you to be laying here and not, in the, not to be in the pulpit preaching. And his response was, no, not at all. I was not living upon preaching. Certainly, he enjoyed preaching. He was gifted at it. But that's not where he lived. That's not where he found his joy. What are you living upon today? Where are you looking for joy in your life? I would encourage us to tie our joy to the fact that we are known and loved by God. That our relationship with Him through Christ will never end. Never be taken away from us. So Paul gives thanks with joy. But what is he thankful for? He gives us two things in particular. First of all, their partnership in the gospel. You see, they supported his ministry from the beginning of their Christian experience, even to their most recent gift of support, which was really the occasion for this letter, as we find out later in chapter 4. And this partnership in the gospel really parallels what he says later in verse 7, when he says, you are partakers with me of grace. In this context, most likely he's talking about their support and their identification with his gospel ministry. You know, we are engaged in this kind of partnership with our missionaries that we support. As we mentioned, the Wilkes earlier, as they're our mission focus this week in our worship guide. You know, one of the most encouraging, meaningful things to be involved with is this partnership in gospel ministry, knowing that through this ministry and how God uses us to help others, that it causes them to give thanks back to God. That it causes those that they minister to to give thanks back to God. To me, that's, that touches my heart to think that as sinful as I am, as little as I can do, God is using me and us as a church to cause praise to resound back to his name? What more significant thing could we be involved with than that? This idea also touches on what we confess. In our confessions of faith, today was the Nicene Creed. Oftentimes we use the Apostles' Creed, which includes the phrase, we believe in the communion of saints. Do you ever, when you confess that, do you ever wonder, what are we saying exactly with that? What does that mean? Well, simply put, it means that 
we confess that we are united with Christ. And by virtue of that, the rest of his body, we're united to one another. We have a bond of unity. But not only that, but that bond of unity should spill over and lead to expressions of love toward one another. Giving of ourselves to partner with them. To help them, to support them, both inwardly and outwardly in that kind of ministry. So that's what we confess when we say the communion of saints. And that's what we see happening here with Paul and the Philippians. Now the second thing he is thankful for is in verse 6. Let me read that again for us. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful that God will finish his work in their lives. That it cannot be thwarted. No matter what the circumstance. I think we would do well to meditate on this truth. Not only for others, but ourselves as well. As a fuel for thanksgiving. And praise. If my guess is, if you didn't know any other verses from this passage that we read, uh, this one may be familiar to you. Maybe one that you've heard before, or even memorized. But have you really thought to it, thought about it, clung to it in your time of need? You see, the enemy often tempts us to think you're a lost cause. God has given up on you. You had your chance and you blew it. You're too sinful and weak to finish the race. Even God is not able to help you now. In fact, your suffering that you're experiencing now is proof that he's given up on you. These are the whisperings of the enemy. Perhaps we don't thank God enough for this truth of verse 6 because we really don't believe it. We don't really believe he's able to finish the work in us. Be encouraged by this verse. Take heart. His word is truth. Paul's joyful thanksgiving arises from God's working in the Philippians. Not from his perception of his own well-being or circumstances. This raises a question for us to consider. What are you thankful for? In the things that you might list, would it include... The things that Paul mentions here about God, God's working in the lives of other Christians. See, his thankfulness expressed here is very other-centered. It's for believers and for the work that God is doing in them. As we go on in the passage in verses 7 and 8, 
you quickly realize that the love that Paul has for the Philippians runs deep. It's not a superficial sort of thing. And this love moves him to pray. He goes, to, goes on to pray for them. Really, verses 9 through 11 flesh out what he mentioned in verse 4, his prayer with joy. But what did that prayer include? Well, what does he pray for? His main petition here is that their love would abound more and more. Now, certainly, this means their love for God, but especially here, their love for one another. You see, unity was a problem in the church. We'll read more about some of the things uh, in the chapters to come. But his, his petition comes out of a pastoral concern for the people. That they be unified and that they would truly grow in love for one another. Now, a simple application of this for us is to pray this way for St. Andrews. Now, I praise God that, relatively speaking... There is not a lot of disunity here at our church. And I think I speak for the pastoral staff when I say that we are very, very thankful for each one of you. You all do a wonderful job at encouraging us continually, praying for us, and supporting us in ministry. That's not always the case in the church. So at least proactively, let's pray this way. Because the enemy would love to create disunity, as he often does, among God's people. Along with this request that their love would grow, he also prays that it would grow with all knowledge and discernment. An awareness and a knowledge of one another and a discernment of how to express that love to meet the needs of the people. You see, love and insight often go together. To love is to have an awareness of a need and have the, the, the motivation to, to meet that need, but discernment and knowledge help you to know what that is, how to do that in a way that truly expresses love and encouragement. As was mentioned earlier, today is Valentine's Day. And if you didn't know that before then, let me just say you're in trouble, okay? <laughs> um, you know, Valentine's Day reminds us of the need to know uh, our spouse, to love our spouse. Um, however, this can't really be done effectively without knowledge and discernment. You see, knowing what is meaningful to the other person and how he or she feels and experiences love is very important. Afterthoughts 
don't cut it. Love is not an afterthought. It involves knowledge and discernment. Trust me. I know these things <laughs> from past experience. And some of you more seasoned veterans are thinking, yeah, that's, that's a rookie mistake. Um, you know, the, the mistake of, you know, they'll like what, what I like. So I'll just get them that, you know, as a gift or a surprise. Maybe it's a, a gift card. I would like a gift card. I bet she would like a gift card. And she's thinking, he spent so little time that he just was getting other things at Publix and decided to pick a gift card up on the way out. And then they, then they, make, then they uh, express their disappointment by sort of reiterating the name of the gift. Oh, a gift card. <laughs> Again, I know, rookie mistake, but... Uh, You see, part of growing in our love for our spouse is our knowledge of them and our discernment of how they experience love and what is meaningful and best for them. You know, God loves us that way with all knowledge, with all discernment. Yet how often do we question his knowledge and discernment. That he doesn't know how to love me in this situation. He doesn't know how to help me in my time of need. Again, don't believe those lies. God is the infinite fountain of love, knowledge, and discernment. If you're discouraged this morning and have doubted this, Know that God is willing and able to love you in just the right way. Exactly how you need to be loved and cared for. The best way possible. I love how it says in Ephesians 1, speaking of our great salvation in Christ, that he lavished the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and all insight. He literally thought of everything. He knows how to love you. Trust him for that. Run to him for that. Paul goes on to express some goals in his prayer. Some some ends of this loving one another and growing and abounding in love. First of all, more immediately, that they would approve what is excellent, that they would know what is best and how to express the love for one another. Now, this assumes that they don't always know what that is. That's why he's praying for them. You know, if you think about it, do we really know what's best for us? let alone others, how they need to be cared for and loved. Perhaps we think we do, but Scripture reminds us in a number of places that we need spiritual growth and maturity 
in order to discern these things, to know what's best. And without God's help in this, usually what we end up discerning is that it's best for us not to have too much demands on our obedience, that it's best for us not to endure through things, and that it's best to be concerned for ourselves and not others. So we need his help. We need his help to know what is best. Secondly, he has a a sort of a forward-looking goal in this prayer, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So he's praying for their growth in light of Christ's return. Now, this is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. A consistent perspective that the authors put out before us to live in light of Christ's return. How might we need to consider that perspective? Living in light of his return. And then thirdly, the ultimate goal he mentions in verse 11, to the praise and glory of God. That their love would abound to that end. Now, if you were going to summarize what Paul is praying for here for the Philippians, it's basically for their sanctification. It's for their spiritual growth, being conformed to Christ, to the glory of God. And if you think about it, really what he's praying is the truth of verse 6 that I read earlier. Remember, God began a, a work in them, and he will complete it. And then Paul turns and says, complete this work in them, in terms of their love growing for one another. And this, so this really exhibits one of the principles of prayer, biblical prayer that we've been talking about off and on. Our prayer is to be based on what, has, what God has promised to do. We plead the promises of God in prayer. We turn his word into prayer. That's really the biblical uh, example that we have. Now, what's surprising in all of this, in terms of what he prays for, is that he doesn't ask for prayer for himself. Remember, he's in prison. He's suffering. He's in chains. And later, he knows, he mentions in verse 19, sort of implying that he knows that they're praying for him. And he, uh, in other places, he asks that they remember his chains. But this is not the petition that he leads with. You know, if you or I were in prison, our first text or email or whatever to the church would be, pray that I get out of this place. Pray for me that I be delivered immediately from this predicament. Isn't that what we do normally in, in prayer? Um, pray for me, me, me. Here, he's, he's praying for them. In fact, uh, in Ephesians, he's still in prison when he's penning this letter. 
in, in chapter 6, he does ask for prayer, but he asks for prayer that, that the words would be given to him to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's what he prays for. How would the Lord have you to pray according to the priorities of his word? Even in this prayer. And how might that change what you pray for on a consistent basis? You know, rather than focusing on himself, he prays for them. That brings us to our last point. You see, in both Paul's thanksgiving and prayer, his joy is expressed in others-centeredness, which actually leads to further joy. Self-centeredness will not lead to joy. However, we may try. You may hear, maybe you've said these things or you hear people say these things, but I have to focus on myself right now. I have to think about me if I want to have peace and joy. That's not how the Bible talks about joy. You think about those statements. I have to think about me. What does that imply? That nobody else will. Believer, will God not think of us? Will he not take care of us? He'll take care of our needs. In Scripture, the opposite of love is not so much hate as it is self-centeredness. That's how we see love expressed. It's other-centered. It's giving of self to do good unto others. It even involves self-denial, things like that. Think of Christ's love. And think of the joy that was set before him which involved the cross. Where is your heart this morning? You know, what what you're thankful for, what you pray for, and who you pray for, reveals a lot about what's going on inside here. Where our hearts are where our hearts are with respect to joy, even. God has a way of growing our joy as we grow to become more like Christ. Christ, who is a man of sorrows, the scriptures say, who did nothing out of selfishness, as we'll go on to read later in chapter 2, who died for us, And did you know that right before his death, knowing that he was going to the cross, that he prayed that his joy would be fulfilled in us? We would do well to pray likewise. Let's pray.
Father, first of all, we thank you for your wonderful demonstration of love through the Lord Jesus Christ who was humbled even to the point of death on a cross. Dying in our place. We can't fathom that kind of love. Lord, help us to grow, to abound more and more in love for you and for one another. Lord, help us to be thankful. Help us to pray with joy that comes from you. Perhaps this morning you've revealed to us that our joy has been misplaced. We're seeking it elsewhere. And then we need to repent of that. Lord, help us to do that. And may we truly experience the joy that comes from above. And that you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.